Overparenting um, looks different depending on how much power the parents feel they have. Parents who feel like they have a lot of power to go and like beat their fist on the headmaster's desk and say, you will ensure that my kid who is already, you know, committed to go to Harvard to wrestle, will he can't get a C or lower. By the way, that's not um, a hypothetical, that's real. Would you believe her? Welcome back to Secrets of a Sober Mom. I'm so, so excited for my guest today. I am speaking with the amazing Jessica Leahy. Jessica is a journalist and an author and a recovering alcoholic. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Hi, Jess. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Oh my God, thank you. Thank you. I always say that. I am so, I've been really lucky um, and I've connected with the most amazing people, particularly just the most amazing, amazing women. And everyone I reach out to has just been, and I'm not surprised because, you know, people in recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they want to help. They want to give. They and, you know, everyone has just been amazing. So I think know, there's I'm also been a big backlash against, you know, secrets and shame. And I think, um, you know, that's wonderful. We, you know, if you look at my office shelves, you know, there's just so many memoirs about women who are like, you know, the basic messages. Um, I was told to never talk about this. I was told, I was told that it's not a thing. It's an, um, you know, there's, there's so much out there that sort of is attempting to keep all of this silent. And I just can't do that. You know, I was raised um, being told to never, ever, ever talk about it. And yep. so as an adult, I finally get to basically talk about it all the time. <laughs> so that's where I am now. I, I talk about it whenever anyone invites me to talk about it because it's so important for, um, you know, I, when I talk to, sometimes when I talk to people, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, you don't look like an alcoholic. I'm like, well, <laughs> you should be surprised. This is, what, I, this is what we look like. I get, I am so happy you said that. I get that all the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, going back to what you said, you know, that's why I started. That was, you know, that's why that was the catalyst for me starting the podcast mm -hmm. because I was suffering in silence and I had so much shame and, um, I knew that if someone like me, you know, where I lived and how I grew up and what my life seemed like on the outside, if someone like me was suffering, there have got to be so many more, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, women, people out there suffering. And um, yep. I think it is, it is vital, and I talk about this a lot, to, you know, get rid of the stigma of, mm -hmm. you know, addiction, you know, alcoholism. It's so yeah. important. And I'm on stage a lot. I do a ton of speaking and, um, you know, I'm in front of, you know, tens of thousands of people every year. And I always mention it in some form or another, usually like, oh, and I'm working at my next book is about preventing substance abuse in kids. And I always, 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 always get an email, a text, someone reaching out to talk about it, to ask about it, to say, I'm getting a little concerned. So I sort of have this, you know, it's been amazing to me, the number of people who all they really need is to hear someone else say it, someone else who they trust to be able to open up to. And so I figured the more I talk about it, the more likely it's going to be that someone is going to say to me, could you talk to me a little bit about how you got sober? And and so the, it's a, it's not just a service. It's also um, 
it's an incredible place of privilege for me to have that access to huge audiences and to be able to um, be an example of someone who is sober and happy and so grateful for it. I know, I know. I've done, I've done a few very, you know, minor, you know, speaking um, engagements. I would love to do more, but you know, um, always, whenever I have done one, there's always an email, a text, mm -hmm. you know, a phone call from from someone. So, um, yeah, you're right. It is. It's a privilege. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Please just keep, keep, keep doing what you're doing, because um, I know, I know you're helping so many people. But um, I want to talk about your, your book, The Gift of Failure. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Which is a New York Times bestseller. Um, and I, I think that, I think that, <clears throat> I think that parenting is hard. Parenting, yeah. parenting is, is just so hard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm wondering, before we get into actually, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the meat of the book, mm -hmm. what do you think the relationship, um, this is a, this is, I don't know if you could answer this question in a few minutes, but <laughs> the relationship between, you know, you, you know, I, I don't want to get into the whole mommy, you know, wine culture thing now, because that's mm -hmm. not what I want to talk about with you. Um, but what do you, you know, what do you think the relationship between, alcohol and, you know, motherhood or parenting mm -hmm. is. I mean, that's, that's not, I could say with honesty, um, that that wasn't my, you know, story. I never, I mean, at least I wasn't cognizant of, oh God, you know, I had such a shitty day. The kids are driving me crazy. You know, I have so much responsibility. I have such a mental, you know, you know, such a mental load. I need to, I need to drink. I don't remember ever feeling like that. However, I think a lot of people do. So I think one of the interesting things about um, sort of, I'm going to link this into the overparenting question a little bit, which is that, you know, we're having kids um, older, we're having fewer kids, we're having kids after more education, we're having kids after having gone, gone back to school. And we don't, we're used to, we as parents, we especially as women are used to dealing with, to getting a lot of performance reviews on our work. And I mean, God knows I've been in school for a long, long time. I went to graduate school. I, you know, I'm used to report cards and short-term, um, you know, job evaluations, all that stuff. And we don't get that for our parenting. And there's, on top of that, there's this sort of, there's this thing that uh, a researcher named Wendy Grolnick refers to as pressured parents phenomenon. It's the idea that um, we, it is this incredibly contagious thing where when we get into a group of other parents and we start talking about like the tutoring and the traveling soccer leagues and all the things that we're supposed to be doing in order to create these perfect specimens of children, um, it, it's incredibly contagious and it creates this sense of panic and um, it really taps into that whole, my child is in peril because my I'm not doing everything I should be doing. And all of that feeds this incredible pressure and anxiety to get it all right every time, every single time, everything has to be perfect. And there's no way to do that and continue on that road and continue on that highly wound, super tense, super worried state without some sort of outlet for it. And in the no, absence for many people right. of, 
Uh, right. Of other outlets, you know, many women are like have bought into the whole, okay, well, now we have a play date and we get our wine glasses with the sippy cup tops on them. And, this, you know, it's wine o'clock, all that sort of stuff. Oh. And I think that that mommy drinking culture um, exists and it's um, there is a pressure to be a part of it. There's jokes about it, um, you know, everywhere. And and it's not just the mommy drinking culture. I was I have a photograph of some. um some wine glasses at a bookstore and it said, um, uh, I teach, therefore I drink. So there, you know, in teaching, you know, you were talking about people who, you know, it, it, I was a teacher for 20 years and my, my biggest panic was that, um, you know, I was going to be found out and that the parents of my students were going to know. Um, but it's not just a mommy culture thing. It's a like, oh, this is how we de-stress this. And there's so much romanticism about it. I mean, I, I, so I talk about a, that in the in the new book that I just finished, which is, you know, there's, I often will get a craving to drink, but it turns out it's not the craving to drink. It's a craving for the experience of um, the person in the book I'm reading about, or that like sitting down and unwinding and having a glass of wine. And I get to sit down and unwind all the time. And it's not really about the glass of wine because I actually don't miss that that much. Um, you know, there's a few moments here and there where I miss the ability and, and a lot of it has to do with sort of socializing and feeling like I'm not enough or feeling like it would just be so much easier for me to, you know, approach people and have that first, you know, make that first over social overture if I'd had a drink or two in me. Um, but but all of this sort of comes together to create a really high stakes, high pressure environment for a lot of parents, especially where, um, you know, especially in the places where I go and speak, which tend to be these places that are just really intense where the parents don't give the kids room to make mistakes and plow, you know, snow plow all of the obstacles out of their way. Because, you know, man, if you're going to if you're going to go to an Ivy League school, everything has to be perfect every single time. And that lack of a report card that we get for our parenting, we tend to push back on our kids. And that is, I mean, the reason I do what I do is that I think that's the most unfair thing we do is view our children as our report card for our parenting. And, um, you know, if the kid, it, well, well, I, mean, it, I love and that. It is. I don't. And, and, I don't love the. I, I don't yeah, love yeah, how that makes us feel. <laughs> yeah. I like that's right. such an interesting way. That's yeah. such an interesting way to um to view that. Well, it is. I mean, we feel like, oh my gosh, we did it right if our kids, you know, are do everything right. And, um, you know, for example, the one the one way I sort of pointed out or talk about it in terms of having an older kid is when I when my older kid started applying to college, I told him that one of the first things we talked about was the fact that. I would not under any circumstances be putting a college sticker on the back of my car because I do not get to co-opt that really important decision about where he goes to school and how he learns and what he learns and finding the best learning environment for him. I do not get to co-opt that by turning it into a boasting point on the back of my car like that. I, you know, that bumper sticker, I don't get to use that as like my, my ability to boast when I pull into the school parking lot. That's unfair. And it's not what making that really important decision is about. And um, anyway, so, you know, those, I think it all comes together. It all swirls together. The anxiety stuff, the high pressure stuff, the fact that, you know, uh, parenting is sort of more high stakes than it's ever been in terms of you know, even economically, this is the first generation in a long time where we can't expect our children to do better than yeah. us economically. Yeah. So it, it, there's so much in there. And there's, you know, there's a bajillion and one books about this. And, and uh, 
yeah, it's a big picture, but it's, I absolutely agree with you. Now, do you think that, um, that feeling of, you know, our kids, you know, are our report cards and everything that, you know, um, that encompasses that. Do you feel that that's ubiquitous or that's just part of kind of like, you know, where like just certain, like certain pockets, you know what I'm getting at? Um, so over parenting is fairly ubiquitous. And I talk about this a lot when I talk about the socioeconomics of this situation. Yes, I tend to speak at a lot of like high stakes, high wealth um, places, but I also go and speak in, I was, you know, last year, I often go and speak in places like that are Title I schools that get federal funding because they have, you know, such a poor area. And it looks different. So overparenting um, looks different depending on how much power the parents feel they have um, outside of the house. So parents who feel like they have a lot of power to go and like beat their fist on the headmaster's desk and say, you will not, you will ensure that my kid who is already, you know, committed to go to Harvard to, to wrestle will, he can't get a C or lower. So that's now your job. You have to make sure you give him the teachers that won't give him a C or lower. And that's, by the way, that's not um, a hypothetical. That's real. Um, I'm sure. So there are those parents and those parents tend to feel like, you know, tend to be white of privilege. You feel like they have the ability to go out there and make a lot of demands that has to do with a power base, the perceived power base. And then there are parents where, you know, they don't feel invited into the school. They don't feel like they have a lot of sway or power at the school. And so a lot of the their pressure on kids happens at home. And I hear this a lot from uh, first generation immigrant kids. I hear this a lot, you know, kids where they feel like every single thing at home is so micromanaged by their parents because of, you know, fear for the kid's safety. We can't discount that. I mean, I don't know as a white woman of privilege, I don't understand how a person endures the conversation that many black moms have to have and black dads have to have with their kids about what to do at a traffic stop. I mean, that's you send your kid out to drive and suddenly you are concerned about their life because they may not come home. That kind of pressure leads to, um, you know, a real feeling of helplessness. And the way that humans, if you look at the research on learned helplessness, the way we counteract, the way we sort of short circuit uh, learned helplessness is by getting more control. And so sometimes the only place we can exert that control is on our children. So, you know, it looks different in different places, but um, overparenting is fairly ubiquitous. Um, but how it manifests looks a little different depending on the socioeconomic class and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's absolutely, and there are places where it's worse than others. I mean, I spend a lot of time in New York City and its environs. I spend a lot of time in, in Westchester. I spend a lot of time in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, um, in sort of places where, you know, it's the the expectation is that in order to do as well as your parents, you have to do everything perfectly and have the perfect route to a, you know, a great career. And there are only certain careers that are acceptable and that kind of thing. <clears throat> That's, that's so interesting. That's amazing. Um, is there, I mean, so for instance, you know, the, the overbearing, you know, helicopter parent, the safe mm -hmm. parent, the parent that, you know, you know, we all, you know, we all know, you know, mm -hmm. people and parents like this, and we're all guilty of a little bit 
of it or well, and, and that's you know. well and that's the point in, in gift of failure i say that in the first chapter like i as a, I, I wrote the book because i was teaching middle school and the parents of my students were i was so angry with them because they were short circuiting so many learning opportunities for my students and i got on this incredibly high horse which is so destructive for the homeschool relationship and i was angry at them and yet at the same at just about the same time i was sort of at peak pissed off with them i realized i was doing the exact same thing to my own kids and so for me it became a matter of copping to the fact that i had done all these things and trying to figure out how to do better um, for my own students and for my kids. And I have the most fun job in the world, which is going out and reading a lot of research and then figuring out how to put it all together to talk about learning and talk about, you know, kids' agency and self-efficacy and all of that fun stuff. So yeah, this is, I, believe me, I'm never, ever going to be on a high horse about this again. I have made every single one of the mistakes. So yeah, it's it's something that we all do on that to some degree or another. I mean, I was a teacher um, a long, long time ago. I have my master's in early childhood education. Mm -hmm. I taught preschool. I taught four-year-olds for, you know, yeah, oh, it's such a great age. For I could never teach the littles. I have so much respect. I'm a middle school yeah. and high school teacher. I've, um, I've taught every grade from five to 12 and, and uh, ooh, the littles, that's a whole yeah. other thing. Yeah, that's, that was not possible. I mean, I can't. Thank God my kids don't need me, but you know, I can't do math above third grade. So I'm useless. <laughs> <laughs> seriously. I mean that completely seriously. Um, but I loved, I loved the littles. I mean, they are, they were young, but well, you know, I mean, they're, yeah. they're so smart and you know, they're, they're, they're sponges and just uh, yep. blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was, I loved it. I have no desire to go back to teaching at all because people ask me <laughs> all the time i really don't i'm honest about it um i have i do love... i i secretly looked i secretly looked for uh looked at a teaching job this you year did. you know i i do it all the time i i i get really close often That's... i'm a nightmare to have on staff though because i write about education right um, at, right you I'm know sure. so i you you i'm a pain in the butt to have on your staff so yeah, I said, you know, I'm honest about it. I I yeah. loved what I did and I was good at it. And once I had my own kids, I, you know, I just I loved being a stay-at-home mom. And even though my kids are older now and they're in a different stage stage of, you know, needing me, air quotes, um, I still love being home. You know, mm -hmm. I still love yeah. being home. But um, yeah, you know, but when I had my first you know, I, you know, I knew everything and, you know, my God, yeah, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I had him reading before he was two and I had the flashcards. And I mean, I had, I did it all. And, you know, he happened to, now, I don't know if it had anything to do with, you know, what I provided, you know, for him, but, you know, he happened to have been a really smart little kid and read really early. And, you know, it was like, when I look at it now, you know, I kind of cringe a little bit. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I was so proud of him and, you know, um, that was, you know, that was what was important to me, you know, and, yeah. you know, now that he's 19, I see there are, you know, he's an amazing kid, but, you know, there are other things that are just so much, so much more important. And, um, I did not do that, you know, with my, with my other two, certainly not my third. Um, I mean, my mom bit. jokes my mom
jokes that she, you know, patted, she was really patting herself on the back for how, how great of a parent she was when I, after I was born, because apparently I was a really easy baby. And then she had my sister who was not <laughs> an easy <laughs> baby. And she's like, oh, wait a second. That had nothing to do with me. And, you know, over and over go again, when I talk to parents on the road, they're like, I just had no idea how different my kids would be. It's crazy how different my kids are. And I'm like, well, yeah, because they're yeah. individual human beings. Yep. All three of my kids are so different, you know, and that, you know, and that really, really advanced, smart little boy grew up to, you know, he is, you know, really smart, but everyone caught up, everyone caught up to him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are other things that I kind of wish, you know, I don't know if I would have had any control over, you know, what, but you know, there are other things that I, that I feel like I could have done differently to, um, gonna kill me if he ever hears this you know just to make him a little bit you know a little bit more well a little bit more well-rounded right. so that gets you know that gets back to you know I you know and my and you know my husband and I when we were raising our kids I think that we were always and we still are to this day you know really you know mindful of that balance between you know fostering independence and mm-hmm. you know helping them when they need our help and it, it's, I guess it's not really such an easy balance. And I do remember, you know, the times when he was not, when they were, you know, in elementary school age and they would, you know, forget their, you know, instrument or forget a homework assignment. And I ran back to the school and I stopped doing that. I did because I knew that intellectually that was, you know, at the end of the day, is it really going to change who they are as, you know, as people, you know, I don't know, probably not. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe it does. And that's, that's going to be my next question. But I was always very mindful of that, you Mm -hmm. know, as they got older, not, you know, letting them and my husband really, he kind of went, he kind of goes to the other extreme, like Mm -hmm. throw them in the deep end and, (laughs) and sink or swim. And he's like this today. And my kids are, in a sense, they're all very different, but particularly the boys are very independent, very independent. Mm-hmm. You have inadvertently stumbled into uh, a major story in the in the um, in the book where and that and one that I talk about on stage a lot because it's a really funny and self-deprecating example of sort of how this works, which is that um pretty much toward the end of writing Gift of Failure, um, I, and I had read a lot of the research. I I knew this stuff. I knew the research on self-efficacy and I knew the research on learned helplessness and all that stuff. And my son who had been having trouble in math um, and had not been doing his homework uh, had, he, we finally sort of got to the root of the problem, which was not that he wasn't doing his homework. It was that he wasn't turning in his homework, which is, uh, which was good information to have. We were able to sort of help him with that and help him figure out some strategies. So we're at the beginning of sort of figuring out the strategies and he leaves his homework uh, on the table at home and he's already left for school. And I actually have to be at the school anyway that day. So it would be no big deal for me to just take it. And so I take to Facebook because I didn't, you know, I was trying to distract myself from it. And I knew if I took it, you know, his teacher wouldn't be mad at him anymore because his teacher's been really pissed off because Finn hasn't been taking his homework. And, um, and I take to Facebook and I'm like, look, you know, and if you, lest you think this is easy for me, this is not easy for me. Finn's homework is sitting here on the table and I want to take it so desperately. And I know I can't. And the replies just kept 
pouring in about be strong, you can do it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then there was a message from Lisa Heffernan, who um, co-wrote a book called Grown and Flown and founded a, a website called Grown and Flown, which is one of the best resources out there for parents of older kids. And she said, well, Jess, I disagree with you. You know, I respect you, but I disagree with you because as a family, you know, we are supposed to look out for each other. That's our job. Like if no one else looks out for each other, looks out for our kids, it has to be us. And I want to model that for my kids. And I'm like, oh man, I'm in big trouble because that makes a lot of sense. And then I realized after thinking about it for a while that, okay, I get that. And she even, she even joked, she said, you know, if your husband left his phone charger at home, you would take it to him at work if he needed it. And I would. But the big difference here is I'm not raising my husband. I'm raising a kid who's having trouble with strategies around, you know, executive function issues around remembering to take his work to school and come up with strategies that'll help him remember taking his stuff to school. And so if I take that thing to school, then I'm, I'm creating a situation in which he will never have to learn to do it because I will he just won't need to have a strategy other than me. So I didn't take it. And his teacher kept him in from recess, which is a whole other thing. Um, we really can't do that. That's a terrible thing to do to because it's the kids who need recess the most that get kept in the most for recess. Um, and he was kept in from recess. He had to redo the homework. And at the end, his teacher, God bless him, his name was Steve Dano. I owe this man so much. He said, this is fourth grade. He said, Finn, this has been going on for too long. So you need to sit here and come up with a strategy so that you won't do this next time. How are you gonna remember your homework next time? And my kid came home from school so proud of himself because he had, I asked him how his day went, like totally prepared to say, oh my gosh, I got in so much trouble. But he said, actually, it was really great. And he had a really good talk with Mr. Dano. And by the way, I think I figured out how to, how to not do this next time. I came up with a system. I came up with a checklist. And of course, the joke is I had been pushing checklists on this kid for ages, but he really believed he'd come up with it because he did. He was It was his idea. And checklists are the way that this kid from fourth grade all the way until just, you know, he's he's sort of had been able to move away from them just recently. Every year that kid had a checklist on our refrigerator that he would consult every single morning in order to remember the stuff that he needed to go out the door. So not taking the homework that one day led to, it was because it was the final puzzle piece he needed to start that cascade of events that led him to coming up with his own strategy. And if I had taken the homework that day, there would have been no need for that. He wouldn't have had to have that conversation with his teacher. He wouldn't have had to come up with the strategy. So you never know when that, last puzzle piece. It's a lot like sobriety. You know, I, I compare it to that. I say, you know, if the very first person that ever said, you know, I'm a little worried about your drinking, um, it, that was the first person it really took like the, for me, it took like the 40th person. Um, and once that person said it, then I was ready to hear it. Um, but thank goodness that 40th person right, said something. Right, it's, right. So yeah, it's like these pieces of a puzzle that have to come together. And and so that story is one that's in the book, one that I talk about a lot on the road, mainly because it's a really low stakes, easy place to start <laughs> thinking, do I want to make myself feel better in this moment by taking the homework? Or do I want to have a kid who will feel better about himself in the long run because he is capable of doing it himself next time? Right. And I'm going to pick the, I'm going to pick the do it himself next time, yeah. every time. Oh, amazing. That's so amazing. I, my, my, 
but still, you know, we, we, we try everything. Um, and, you know, he's very, very inconsistent. And it's something, that, <laughs> you know, we need to work so, on. He's 19. He, yeah. He's away at school. Yeah. He lives, you know, yeah. on his own. And, you know, for the most part, he does, a, you know, he does a good job. But there, he's, you know, he's definitely has some executive function stuff going on. That actually and, and, uh, was the fun part to write for me because, you know, so many parents keep hearing about executive function and think of it as like one thing. So I was able to sort of take executive function and break it down into all of the components, all of the things that executive function is, and then come up with strategies um, to help kids to be kids training wheels until we can take the training wheels off for every, you know, whether it's transitions or scheduling or time management or whatever that thing is. That was a fun part to write. That was um, always my husband's favorite term, executive function. I'm not really yeah. sure. I mean, he he is the opposite of that. He is like OCD. He's crazy like that. But um, I wonder where he got it. And I never really questioned. I thought I always knew what it meant, but he used he like used it a lot. Uh huh. And um, he still yeah. Does. It's 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 actually you know it's it's really gratifying. I go out and talk about executive functioning, and I used to have to explain it to everyone. But increasingly, people are st parents are starting to learn what that means. Um, you know, executive functioning deficits. You know, that's a a sort of a label I'm hearing more and more. And I think it's really imp important to understand that it's not necessarily one thing, and it's tied into the fact that you know, kids don't have functioning frontal lobes, fully functioning frontal lobes until they're in their early 20s. And so yeah, that's what all of that stuff, all of that stuff, the executive functioning skills, the sort of organizational sort of upper brain stuff, um, that's what really great middle school and high school teachers understand is that we're there to support them as that stuff develops and not necessarily make them be in trouble because they can't automatically do it all the day they walk into the middle school building. Um, and right. that's for me, really, the the that's why I love middle school so much is I get to hang out with these kids and watch them screw up all day long and then pick <laughs> the moments, the best moments when they're going to be receptive to the learning. And then if they get rescued in that moment, all of that waiting, all of that preparing for that moment is if their parents provide one. So, yeah. It reminded me very quickly of um, a story and talking about that. What's going to be that one piece of the puzzle? Obviously, this wasn't it, but it could have been. So I think he must have been, he was in middle school, Max. He, it must have been eighth grade, maybe. And um, he had a book. His, I don't, I, it was one of the books that he needed for his English class. And I guess mm -hmm. he forgot it to bring, he had it home and he forgot to bring it to school. And he came, he didn't, he didn't call me to ask me to bring him his book. But when he got home from school, he had a copy, another copy of the book. And in masking tape attached to the book, bound around the book in big block letters, it said, Book of Shame. <laughs> and I, I and it, the Book of Shame is when, you know, you're given a book because you don't have your own. And I yeah. didn't know if that was genius or, or just so awful. And I think, and I remember posting it. It's in my, it's somewhere in my, po in my Facebook history. Cause I remember posting it and thinking, what do I do about this? And I, and I, I, after thinking about it, probably for not that long, I, you know, decided to just do nothing about it, but that was it. He forgot his book and his teacher gave him one that said book of shame. <laughs> 
as someone who's been a teacher for 20 years, someone who has done that before, I think the best possible scenario would be to do what Steve Dano did. So I love the book of shame idea. And, I, you know, as someone that I, well, I actually don't love the book of shame idea. What I do love is the idea that a teacher is responding by sort of putting some pressure on them to figure out how to do it themselves. But the perfect, you know, scenario would be that, believe me, I have done I've made every teaching and parenting mistake. So I've done that um, specifically around dress codes, which is even worse. Um, but I think anything that involves shame, not only does it not work with kids um, and it can often create the opposite effect, it destroys our relationship with kids. So um, I think giving them strategies to do better next time and keeping it uh, away from the shame aspect, I think would be a great idea. And I think, uh, I think most teachers would agree with me on that one. Right. Oh my God. It was, I got most, most of the reaction I got from it was, you know, how dare they go, you know, march right in there. And I, 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 no, it's funny. And I used to, keep, you know, I used to keep ugly t-shirts, um, you know, when, when girls would defy dress code for one reason or another, I hate to admit this. Um, it was just the thing we did at school. We'd keep big, ugly t-shirts and blah, blah, blah. It's so horrible. Some of the stuff you know, for most people get to make those mistakes in private um, because I write about them. I tend to make them in public. And so, you know, we make those mistakes and then we do better next time. That's how we model this for our kids in the first place. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. And um, so, you know, I often um, I think about this a lot, you know, that when my kids were younger, I uh, like really young, I was not drinking alcoholically. Mm -hmm. I mean, I drank, like, I'm using air quotes, like, you know, a normal, I mean, I was, you know, I was maybe a little bit more than a moderate drinker. I mean, alcohol, my life was manageable. Alcohol was not affecting my life, you know, in any way. Yes. Was I probably, you know, the one at dinner who had that one more, you know, glass of wine or that one more martini than everyone else? Yes. You know, looking yeah, back, yeah, yeah, I drank, yeah. you know, I drank a little bit more than everyone else, but um, I, you know, I was, you know, I was okay. And, you know, I was mm -hmm. there for my kids and it wasn't really until, you know, 2012 when my husband and I separated that, you know, the shit really hit the fan and mm -hmm. like an animal and my kids were still, you know, youngish, you know, my, you know, my daughter mm -hmm. was very young. Um, I think my son was, I don't know, 11, my other my middle one uh, was eight and then my youngest was five. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, they were young, but, you know, they weren't, they weren't babies. And sometimes I think, God, you know, maybe it would, would it, would, would it have been better for me to get all this crap out of the way, you know, when I was younger, you know, and I could have, my kids would have sober mom, you know, rather mm -hmm. than having put them through such a horrible, horrific, and scary few years. Well, as you know, we can't, you know, <clears throat> I have this conversation with relatives of mine that got sober later too. And you, you can apologize for those things. You can feel bad about those things, but you can't change those things. I mean, you, you know, all this I stuff. Yeah. So the best, the best way is just to, I'm just grateful that I got sober when my kids, uh, the younger one has no memories of me drinking and the older one, uh, you know, doesn't 
I, I was really, you know, I didn't drive drunk with them or anything like that. I was very fortunate. And then I'm one of those sort of, uh, there were a lot of not yet's in my story. So mm. um, I'm just, I just, all I can do is be grateful for that. Right. Yep. 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 Yeah. Um, yeah. Fortunately, you know, my, I didn't, I didn't drive drunk with my kids either. Um, you know, were there times that, you know, I was out for dinner with friends and friends, kids, and we all had a couple of glasses of wine. Absolutely. You know, if I, for whatever reason would have gotten pulled over, you know, for, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever reason, you know, having, you know, not, you know, having, not using my turn signal and they decided Mm -hmm. to give me a breathalyzer. Could I have been over the limit? Probably, you know, but yeah. I mean, I did a lot of horrible, horrible things. And, um, but driving, driving There's... drunk with my kids. I almost did. I almost, almost, almost. And I told this in another story. I'm not going to get it. I almost after a bar mitzvah with my son and being completely wasted, I was stopped by one of the security people at the, at the place. And he's like, what do you think you're doing? And my friend, you know, drove me home and I, I would have gotten in the car with him. I would have mm-hmm. gotten in the car with him if I wasn't stopped. And I don't even want to think about what could have happened, but. There's a, one of yeah. my favorite descriptions of sort of, you know, there are always those things that are sort of the worst thing that we feel like we ever did. And, um, and there's a, a wonderful passage in, um, Stephen King, who's also sober, um, his book, uh, Dr. Sleep, he, the character in Dr. Sleep is the little boy from uh, The Shining grown up. And that character yeah. in Dr. Sleep um, is unwilling to sort of go there with there's just one story like he's been willing to talk about every other story of the lows he got to, you know, in his drinking, except for this one. And at, um, finally, 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 when it gets to the point where he tells this story, he's in a meeting and he tells this story and, you know, it's the, you expect everyone to just be disgusted with you and horrified. And, um, and there's sort of a moment of quiet after he speaks, he tells this big, I can't tell you the story cause it would ruin the story, but okay. he tells this thing that he did and everyone's like, okay, now it's time for chips. You know, there's that, you know, everyone's like, okay, yeah, you did that thing. We've heard that. That's, you know, that was, yeah, that sucked, but we've heard a lot worse. So right, right, we right, all right. have those things that we yeah. hold on to that are like, Oh, I, I can tell anything except for this one thing. Cause that's just the most disgusting thing I ever did, but getting that out. And, and that's why the shame thing I was talking about both in why I talk about sobriety and because there can be no room for me to ever, ever shame a student or shame my children. Mm. Um, that is one thing I will not do simply because um, it's, it's the thing that if anything was going to keep me drinking, that was going to be it. It was going to be the shame over the drinking right. or the yep. shame for whatever else that was going to keep me drinking. Yep. So there's yep. no room for, for that in our house. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I thought that the title of my podcast secrets, you know, of a sober mom was just so perfect mm-hmm. for so many reasons. Mm-hmm. Initially, initially I thought that, um, I mean, I really have no clue who tunes into my podcast, but initially I thought that, you know, my target, you know, audience would be, you know, women just like myself, you know, um, you know, in recovery and that mm-hmm. all my guests would be, you know, moms, uh, in recovery and their stories. And it really has morphed into a lot more, you know, some of my guests 
lot of my guests, you know, have kids and a lot of my guests do not have kids, but I realized that it's more of, you know, my secrets that I, you know, that I'm choosing mm -hmm. to share, you know, with the world. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, there is nothing, there's no place, honestly, that I, mm -hmm. you know, won't go with my story. I mean, I certainly don't want my podcast to be, you know, just hours and hours of, you know, drunkologues because mm -hmm. that's, that's, you know, that gets boring after a while. Right. But I do think that it's really important to, um, you know, to be honest. And when people hear, yep. because I know that, I know at the beginning, you know, in meetings when people shared and, you know, told out, you know, what happened to them, it made me feel like, oh my God, you hit all the bottles also. Oh my God, you drank in the shower too. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God, you, yeah. you know, you did that. Like it was, and it made me feel, it made me feel better. You know, it made yeah. me feel that I wasn't, that I wasn't so alone. So that yep. being honest That's and destigmatizing, you know, addiction is, yeah. I feel is just really paramount. It was a really interesting. So the the new book is called The Addiction Inoculation, and it's that um in the in that book, and that's coming out in April twenty twenty one. And what is it? The addiction book, inoculation. The addiction inoculation. Okay. And um, raising healthy kids in a culture of dependence, Ooh. and uh, I. I, I'm very honest in that book, and it's very when anyone who writes as anyone who writes memoir knows, um, it's very difficult to draw to walk the line between your stories and other people's stories. And I was able to talk about my experience, but my experience also involves other people's lives and other people's, you know, sobriety or non, you know, drinking. Yeah. And so it was really it was really challenging to walk that line effectively because my story doesn't is intertwined with a bunch of people in my family. And so it was a big moment when I, uh, my parents finished reading the book um, in its galley form just last week called to have a phone call. And there were a few things that, you know, we had to talk about, but we left feeling like everyone had been respected and everyone had been protected in a way that was appropriate. But that was part of the, the scariest part of writing that book for me was yeah. being respectful of other people's stories while Absolutely. effectively telling my own. So that's really, cause I would, I would love I would love to write a memoir. You know, there's a lot out there and I'm not a writer. You know, I, I could write a little bit, you know, but, um, I would love to do that, but, uh, there's all that it involves a lot of people and people that I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it would be so okay to, because I know, you know, I know what my story is and I know how I felt about certain things in my life and, you know, my, you know, what I experienced and what, you know, is, you know, that's my truth. And mm -hmm. it might, I don't, I don't know how other people would, would react to it. So mm -hmm. I don't know how that. Well, would write it, write it just for the sake of writing it. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. that's, that's what, yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I want to, you know, I have like, you know, I have like journals and I have, you know, every, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night mm -hmm. with like a thought, like, oh my God, this is such a great line and I'll jot it down. So I've got stuff around. Mm -hmm. I just, I, uh, in my head though, I feel like, mm -hmm. oh my God, it must take, I mean, how long does it take to write a book? Uh, like, I think me, that it, so, well, with 
But with this book, because I had so much research to do, I researched for a year before completing the proposal, like from the moment I had the idea for the book to finishing the proposal and giving it to my agent so that we could try to sell the book. That was a year. And then mainly because I had to do so much research and then, uh, you know, it can go slightly faster than that. And then we sold the book and then it took me a year and a couple months um, to write the book. And then, so I started working on this book now two years ago and it'll be published next April. Oh, okay. It's not that long, Yeah, but it's a commitment. Yeah. I mean, I it mean, really depends. You know. Yeah. I mean, if you're committed to, if you're just writing, you know, if you're writing a memoir and you're not committed to the research evidence-based backing, then, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But the, what I love to write is, um, books that translate research on child development and right, cognitive right. development and neuroscience and all that stuff. And so I have to fully immerse myself in that research first. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would, um, even have that's my happy place. I'm a big research geek. Yeah, I love yeah, that yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I love to read it. I just don't think I could, I could write like that, but, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I, I, <laughs> a lot. I think, I think my story, I think, I don't know. I think my story could be interesting. Maybe well, yes, here's your lucky day. Around. I also am, I co-host a podcast called hashtag. Yes, I was, I was going to wrap up and ask yeah. you that. I love the name of it. Yeah, so, so you can go there and listen. Hashtag am Sorry, writing. So. Yeah. I'm so hashtag am writing was, is a hashtag on Twitter that, you know, for people that are writing stuff. And so we, um, so we wrote, did, created a podcast around that, and uh, we essentially talk about every aspect of writing. Um, my co-hosts are my former editor at the New York Times, who's now a fiction writer, KJ Delantonia, and uh, Serena Bowen, who is a best-selling uh, romance author. She's written over 35 books, I think, at this point. And so we talk about every aspect of writing. We talk about getting an agent. We talk about, you know, the how you get the words on the page. We talk about the tools we use. We talk about, you know, all kinds of stuff. And then Hashtag Am Writing also has a Facebook group where we have a really supportive group of writers who just are urging each other on. And, you know, we moderate that group so that everybody's nice and there are no mean comments and no no spam. And it's been, um, for us, the reason we started the podcast is A, we love podcasts and B, because we wanted to create a really inviting place for writers to talk about the work of, you know, the job of getting the words on the page. And, and that's what we've managed to do. And we're in our fourth year. Uh, we're at like episode 220, 220 or oh something like that. And we get I, to I, we get to interview really cool writers. Um, we've interviewed David Sedaris and Jennifer Weiner and um, Anna Quinlan and Richard oh, wow. Russo and people like that. And at the same time, mostly what we do is just talk with people who have done really cool things with their writing and talk about how they do it. Okay, I'm on it. So you don't. So just, <laughs> so I, you don't have to be a. You know, you don't have to have any experience in writing to like sit no, down and want to write. Absolutely a not. Oh, okay. Absolutely not. Oh, okay. and you know, they're because they're also incredible resources. You know, it what what's really great about the Facebook group if someone goes in there and says, Look, I'm looking to start a memoir. Does anyone have any recommendations? You'll get a long list of recommendations um, because everyone's got their I have my favorite memoir writing books and everyone else there I'm sure has their own as well. So it's a it's a great place to sort of get ideas and and uh 
you reminded me actually it's time for us to have a memoir writer on we got to get someone to come on and talk about the process of writing memoir okay well please let me know when you do and i i absolutely <laughs> will be there because after speaking with you i i, I want to do this well, good. And wow. you can take this own. The best memoir I've read recently is um, a book by Lacey Crawford. I read it last week called Notes on a Silencing. And it's about her assault at St. Paul's School years and years and years ago and um, the cover up and how she is sort of her reckoning with that past. Ooh. And it's one of the most beautifully written memoirs I've read in a long, long time. Notes on a Silencing by Lacey Crawford. Okay. I will definitely check it out. All right. All right. Thank you. I, You're so I, I, welcome. There's so, there's so much more that I, I mean, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> I feel, I say that well, to all talk. my guests because, not, no, I don't, I'm sorry. I, I don't say that to all my guests. <laughs> I, say, <laughs> I, I, I do, definitely do not say that to all my guests. I say <laughs> to very few guests and I'm going to say it to you that I could, I could talk to you forever. So please come back. And sure thing, let's talk can, after the new book more. comes out. And good luck on your new book. Keep doing what you're doing. I think you are Thank amazing. You. And I hope you guys enjoyed listening to my conversation with Jessica. Hang in there and I'm always cheering for you. Well, now that